the events of the last ten days have brought uncertainty to the lives of many people. Some have lost their loved ones. Some have lost their homes. Some have lost all of their material possessions, escaping only with the clothes that were on their backs. As you watch the news reports that come from the Gulf Coast of Texas, whether you're listening to them interview the mayor of Rockport, the city that suffered such utter devastation, a city that right now they're anticipating that perhaps as high as 60% of its residents will never return. And you listen to that mayor talk about his city and talk hopefully about his city in a voice that quivers and cracks with emotion. Or you see people as they're hauling their material possessions out of their flooded homes to the curbs and piling everything they own there because it's been damaged by the floodwaters. And it brings tears to your eyes. Towns in the immediate path of Harvey suffered massive destruction. The Gulf Coast area has suffered massive flooding. And accordingly, Governor Abbott declared today as a national day, as a day of prayer for Texas in Texas. President Trump called for a national day of prayer today. And I find that commendable on their part. Because from America's beginning, we have been a nation of prayer. In the meetings of the Continental Congress, they began with prayer. And yet, though perhaps the events of the last ten days have brought about this proclamation for a day of prayer for Texas, and though the events of the last ten days have brought about the proclamation of a national day of prayer, should we just pray for Texas one day a year? Should we just pray as a nation one day a year? The longer I live and the longer I preach, and that's been a number of years now, And the longer I attempt to serve the God of heaven in the way that God wants me to serve Him, the more convinced I am that very few of us are making of prayer what it is our privilege to make. I'm afraid that for a lot of people today, prayer as a working force has become a lost art. Now, maybe some of these folks have been silenced by intellectual difficulties. They've decided, well, I really don't believe in God that's going to answer prayer. Or maybe some voices have been silenced in prayer because of moral difficulties. In the secret place and meeting with God, they have been brought face to face with surrenders that they were unwilling to make. 
when called upon to give up self or to give up prayer, a lot of folks over the years have chosen to give up prayer. And yet by far, I think, the greatest number of those who have ceased to pray. And the greatest number of those for whom prayer is a working force has become a lost art. I think they've ceased to pray through no definite conviction of the futility of prayer. I think perhaps what has happened is that we have drifted into a habit of prayerlessness. We've allowed the prayer hour to be crowded out of our lives. There have been duties and obligations that have just seemed more pressing at that point than prayer. What is prayer? It's not some kind of magic. Prayer is fellowship with God. Prayer is seeking to understand oneself. Prayer is need finding a voice. Prayer is embarrassment seeking relief. Prayer is a means of contact with the God of heaven. Prayer is all of those things, but it's more. Prayer is cooperation with God. Because in prayer, we align our desires with the desires of God. In prayer, we align our will with the will of God. It is through prayer that you and I come into agreement with God. It's through prayer that God's way becomes our way. Our will comes into line with the will of God. Prayer is reality. And prayer is also a response to a loving God. And yet, do we sometimes struggle with having a real prayer life? Do we sometimes struggle with having a relationship with God? Do we struggle sometimes with knowing how to pray? And do we struggle with knowing what to say? It reminds me of a story I read of a young college boy. He was lamenting the fact that he kept going to the various social activities on campus. Because he was going to these various social activities so he could do what all young college boys want to do. He wanted to meet young ladies. And it seemed he never knew what to say to them. He would just get all tongue-tied. I mean, tongue-tied. So he went to his faculty advisor and asked him for some help. And the advisor said, well, now, as you go to these social activities, are you in love with any of these girls? He said, well, no, I'm not. 
And the advisor said, well, if you fall in love with any of them, you'll know what to say. Folks, that's the way of prayer. Fall in love with God and you're going to know what to say. That is what Christianity is all about. It's a long falling in love with God. And prayer is a vital part of the life of every Christian. And you and I must cultivate the habit of prayer. Of praying before we begin any important task in life. We've got to determine, we've got to make up our mind that a vital prayer life is worthwhile. And when we make up our mind that a vital prayer life is worthwhile, we have to organize our day around our prayer time. Because prayer sets the climate of our day. And you say, well, sometimes I pray. But while I'm praying, my mind wanders. When your mind wanders in prayer and you're talking to God, pray about what your mind has wandered to. When we're talking with some of our dearest and nearest friends and the conversation wanders away from where it has been, we go there with it and we converse. And that's what talking with our friends is all about. When you're talking to God in prayer, you're talking about the best friend you've ever had or you ever will have. And if you're praying to God and engaging in prayer and your mind wanders and say, God, I want to talk to you about this. Because this is on my mind. Today, as a state and as a nation, we've been called on to pray for the victims of Harvey. To pray for those first responders who left homes knowing they would come back to their possessions all being gone so they could sacrifice themselves to help others. To pray for ordinary people who have answered the call for help and like Mary, they've done what they could. Folks, there is a specific name for prayer that's sent up to God on behalf of someone else. It's called intercessory prayer. And too often, the common denominator of our prayer is somewhat selfish. Too often, the common denominator of our prayer is, God, I need You to do this, and God, I need You to do that, and God, I want, and God, I must have, and we're concerned with our own desires and our own wishes and making sure that that God grants our desires and God grants our wishes. But folks, the most noble of prayers are those prayers that are sent to the throne of God on behalf of someone else. As Jesus Christ walked up and down the dusty roads of Palestine, His prayer was for others. John 17 and verse 9, Jesus said, I pray for them. He said, I pray not for the world, but for them that Thou hast given Me, 
for they are thine. And then in verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Then here's what Paul had to say about Jesus in Romans 8 and verse 34. He said, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that dies. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even now at the right hand of God, listen to it, who also maketh intercession for us. And then speaking of Jesus, the Hebrew writer has this to say in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him, seeing that He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The great Apostle Paul prayed for others. I want you to listen to Paul's words. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with verse 14. For this cause, Paul writes, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Who's Paul praying for? He's praying for the church at Ephesus. And then listen to what he writes to young Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We are to pray for our rulers. A prayer for rulers promotes peace and tranquility between communities and nations. And folks, make no mistake about it. These people particularly need our prayers. Because right now, they're having a wonderful moment of everybody joining together, wishing the very best for those who've been ravaged by the storm called Harvey. In another ten days, they'll be back at their old pettiness of politics. And we need to pray for them. We need to pray for them that they can put aside differences and do what's best for people. 
and not for their own self-interest. These rulers we have, these in authority, those that serve in the Congress, the Senate, the State House, the governors, every one of them, they're all exposed to many dangers. And they're exposed to a lot greater temptations than other men are. God has the power to influence their actions. And we must tap into the power of God. They have the power to promote the well-being of the church. Paul said, pray for them. Why, Paul? That we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The duty for us to pray for our rulers is not affected by them being pagan or non-pagan. It's not affected by whether or not they are oppressors or persecutors or whether they are even aggressively anti-religious. We're just to pray for them. In fact, when we have rulers that are aggressively anti-religious, when we have judges making court decisions that are aggressively anti-religious, we should pray the more earnestly for those kind of rulers, for those kind of judges, that God would touch them and pray for them, and that God would change their hearts. It's kind of like I, I told you this story just a few weeks ago, but it perfectly illustrates the point. So I'm going to tell it again. But it's like that church, that congregation, that their building was just falling down around them. And the preacher made a big appeal, folks. We need people to step forward, to come up with the money to rebuild this building. And there was a man sitting about three rows back. Wealthiest man in this little small town. Had a reputation that Abraham Lincoln suffocated in his pocket. He squeezed him so tight. But oh, he had money. And he stood up and said, Preacher, I want to pledge $50 toward us building a new building. Well, as he sat down, a chunk of plaster turned loose of the ceiling and hit him right on the head. And he stood up and said, uh, Preacher, make that $500. And he sat down and the preacher bowed his head and said, Oh, Lord, hit him one more time. Well, you know, that's kind of the way we need to pray for some of our aggressively anti-religious, anti-Christian judges, congressmen, senators, and rulers in this country. And people like the Freedom From Religion Foundation that are always poking their nose in somebody else's business too, as long as I'm on that subject. We've got to pray for them. We pray for our rulers. But we also have to pray for our brethren. For those that are weak, that their faith does not fail. Like Jesus, that night of His betrayal, He looked. To, he was sitting there at the table eating the Passover with the apostles, the disciples, and He looked at Peter. He said, Peter, Satan's going to tempt you, but I'm going to be praying for you. We need to pray for our weak brethren. We need to pray for the sick. As John wrote to Gaius, Beloved, I pray above all 
that thou may prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. For the elders that rule over the church, that they might rule wisely and they might rule well. Paul called the elders of Ephesus to him in Acts chapter 20. He bid them farewell and in verse 36, they all knelt together and they had prayer. Pray. Pray for me that I can preach God's Word faithfully. Pray for those who are broken hearted that they might be comforted. Pray for every brother and every sister that their spirit and soul and body might be preserved entire and complete till the coming of the Lord. We've got to pray for our rulers. We've got to pray for our brethren. Oh, I wish that the Lord had left this part out of my Bible. We've got to pray for our enemies. And the Lord really meant that too. And we can best deal with our enemies not by doing them injury, but by dealing kindly with them. By praying for them. In Romans chapter 12, Paul would write in verse 17, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Jesus in that sermon on the mount said, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that despitefully use you and persecute you. I want you to look back by an eye of faith this morning. And I want you to see Jesus hanging on that cross. He's suspended there between heaven and earth and He lifts His eyes toward heaven and He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I want you to see Stephen. Stephen, as he's down on the ground, as the Pharisees are hurling stones on him, as they're taking the very life out of his body, and he lifts his eyes and he says, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Write this down. It's on the final exam. Once you've prayed for someone, you're going to find it's really hard to do them injury. We've got to pray for the lost. The Bible records prayers for lost souls. You remember our Bible class this morning, we talked about Abraham. That's the very first recorded prayer in the Bible, is Abraham going to God and praying to God on behalf of the wicked cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. We find Paul in Romans 10. And he says, My heart's desire and prayer unto God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We've got to remember two things in praying for the lost. There's a difference between what God desires and what God wills by decree. God desires the salvation of everyone. 
He wills that they should be saved through faith and obedience. He wrote in Mark, he, Jesus told us in the Great Commission in Mark 16, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Peter would write, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, At the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now, now what, Peter? Now He commandeth all men everywhere to come to repentance. Prayer cannot. And prayer will not change the divine plan of salvation or the divine law of pardon. So in praying for the lost, we have to remember that our prayer must be that they would be moved by the power of God's Word to be obedient to the divine will of God. But beloved, great benefits come from intercessory prayer. Great benefits come when we pray for others. There's a benefit to the one being prayed for. There's a blessing for them. In James chapter 5, verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is effective. James tells us that. There's a blessing for the one being prayed for and there is a blessing for the one doing the praying. Because when I'm praying for you, that lifts me out of myself and it makes me more unselfish. It makes me more Christ-like. It makes me more joyful because I'm not praying for self. I'm praying for you. I'm lifted out of myself. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1, 3, and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. If I'm going to pray, if I'm going to pray to God on behalf of myself, if I'm going to pray to God on behalf of you, I've got to be on praying terms with God. And being on praying terms with God means that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Master of my life. You've heard this before. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, he is not master and Lord at all in your life. It's His invitation as we stand.